Hey everyone, this is Jose Nino again with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today I'm joined by political consultant and podcast host Luke Macias. We're going to have a very lively discussion about Texas politics. And before we start, Luke, how's your day going? Oh, I can't complain. It's Friday. I'm hosting people from our church over for dinner this evening and uh, done with my travels for the week. I've been out of town several days this week. So glad to be home and glad to be getting ready for the weekend. Indeed, that's a great way to kick off the weekend. Now, before we dive into some of the finer points of Texas politics, could you tell my audience more about yourself and the political work you currently do? When I was 16, uh, I was going to be a doctor. Luke in the Bible was a doctor. That's who I was named after. And then my dad decided to run for the legislature. We had done very little politically up until then, other than watch the State of the Union, the debates on a regular basis. I was a Rush Limbaugh baby growing up, listening to him a lot in the car. But somebody from our church who was politically active came to my dad and said, hey, our state representative is a very liberal Republican, and would you consider running? And so we threw together a very last-minute campaign and ended up winning by 45 votes of 20,000 cast. And that basically opened my eyes to an arena that I really wasn't familiar with. I actually went to my parents at that point and said, hey, I think God has called me to engage in the political arena. And so at that point, my time and talent and whatever I had started getting applied in some form or fashion, uh, mostly volunteer for about five years. Two years later, my dad was defeated by teacher unions and casino gambling interests in his Republican primary by 17 votes of 30,000. But I just continued to be engaged and involved. And then five years later, opened up a political consulting company. I have helped run well over 100 campaigns all across the state of Texas from city council to county commissioner to state house to statewide and have ended up working with a ton of different conservative state-based organizations. I do a little bit in different areas and a little bit on the national level, but for the most part, really stay focused on state-level politics. I think that's where we can make a massive impact and have seen that made over the last several years, even though it is not always as easy as it should be in a ruby red state. And so I now work with various different political nonprofits. I also have the weekly show that I started three years ago on Texas news and politics. And so run that every week and keep people informed as far as specifically in Texas, what are the things going on in the news, in politics that really affect their day-to-day lives. And so do that, still work very closely with a lot of my conservative friends in Texas politics, uh, both elected officials, activists, donors, uh, across the board. What political figures would you say made you become more of a hardcore political operative? Uh, It's really hard to say. I think that Maybe this is a blessing. At 16, I really, I was being homeschooled. I almost stopped school that year. To be honest, I was like spending my my full-time days just texting my friends and getting them to come to our campaign headquarters and stuff envelopes or go block walk with me. I probably personally knocked on, you know, one, two, three thousand doors that cycle for my dad and put up four by eight signs all across four counties. And so I would say that that campaign is really what kind of indoctrinated me in this and then seeing that victory i realized wow just a few people stepping up and with it being such a close margin both in victory and two years later in defeat it kind of made me realize very quickly that a handful of people could make the difference when i went to austin i went up and interned for my dad during the second half of the legislative session 
and for those who know Texas politics, they know that all the laws pass in the second half. And so I was able to witness on a daily basis all that was going on there inside of the Capitol with my dad. And so from a pretty early point of view, 16 and 17 years old, I was very convinced, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to be involved. I would say my political viewpoints have shifted over time. But in general, saying I want to do this full time was pretty recognized at an early age. Yeah, that's actually quite different from a lot of people. I got into politics in high school, but I don't think I ever got into the operational part of it until I'd say I was actually 25. Funny enough, because I was, in fact, trying to transition out of politics at one point, but then politics found me inevitably. So, and there we are. So, one thing I've gathered from interacting with many people in the political space is that they tend to get into politics through the federal route and just stay there and they pay more attention to what's happening on the hill and all that. You on the other hand are pretty are much more unique in the sense that you seem to be much more focused on state level politics. Why are you more involved at that level as opposed to the federal level? I just see it having a bigger impact and single people or a very small coalition of some individuals having the ability to make a bigger impact, I still, again, do some work on the federal level and I'm a big fan of some of the people at the federal level that are working there. I think on a national level, we're really more in a battle over moving the Overton window and having different conversations shift, where on a state level, we're actually fundamentally talking about what kind of policy we're going to pass. It is much easier to see your idea enacted into law And what we also see nationwide is the only way to have some of these discussions is to force some red states to take actual policy action and that that can cause a cascading effect of these issues. And so I think I just, from early on, I was involved just because that's where my dad was elected. That's what he decided to run for. That's what someone in our church asked him to run for, right? And so that gave me a unique perspective from that point of view. But ultimately, being in it as long as I have been, I think it's been increasingly motivating seeing real life uh, victories on a regular basis. And that's probably what keeps me more focused on it as opposed to so easily being distracted by everything happening at a national level. The 2023 legislative session is right around the corner. And for me, the 2021, the previous session, was a mixed bag. At the very least, we were able to get constitutional carry pass, something that I've deeply cared about for a while. I used to work for a Second Amendment lobby, and we were just banging our heads against the wall trying to get that legislation passed year after year to watch it get killed by the political establishment in Austin. However, we finally got on the win column there, though there are still many loose ends that need to be tied up. What issues do you think will be the most pressing in the 2023 session? So I think that first first and foremost, when you take a step back, I think it's helpful for people to kind of understand the political dynamics. It's a good reminder that we have a rather weak governor state as a whole, just the way our constitution is developed. Our governor has definitely exceeded that authority in many ways with COVID pandemic and really testing the ability for him to exert his authority. But that being said, our lieutenant governor is actually more powerful than our governor. And then our Speaker of the House is arguably also more powerful, followed then by the governor. And so we have a lieutenant governor in Dan Patrick, who outside of 
you know, some issues, very few issues has really been the consistent conservative that we rely upon to even give us a chance of enacting Republican policy into law. Constitutional carry was one of those issues that Dan was not as excited about. It was actually probably the one issue that conservatives could kind of always point to and say that we're not sure where Dan is on this. Luckily, he came not only on board, ultimately, but I would say without his willingness to pressure the Senate to take action, we wouldn't have gotten constitutional carry. There are many senators, GOP senators who voted for constitutional carry, ultimately, who only did so because they were politically pressured to do so by the lieutenant governor. So I'm grateful for his willingness to do that. Ultimately, Dan is going to take a more aggressive approach and has publicly said numerous times that he's going to actually advance a Republican agenda. Dade Phelan, our Speaker of the House, who relies on Democrats pretty heavily to have the power that he has, has issued a number of statements that tend to say that he's going to fall in line with a more Chamber of Commerce approach to governing and will be avoiding social issues as much as possible. And then typically what happens is Abbott plays Switzerland. So Abbott doesn't say he's with the Senate approach. He doesn't say he's with the House approach. He just kind of waits and sees what shakes out and generally signs Republican laws that come to him. But he doesn't apply political pressure and tell legislators you have to deliver Republican priorities. So that is what has historically happened. We are, I think, going into this session set up in a couple ways. One, you have Dan Patrick, I would say, being more aggressive than he's been the last two legislative sessions in his rhetoric and the ideas and agenda he's looking at putting forward. I would say Dade Phelan is even more dug into a moderate worldview than he was last session, making things like the heartbeat bill, the trigger ban, constitutional carry, those type of policies less likely to fly out of the House as they did last time. But you also have Greg Abbott being a little more vocal than he's been on the past on certain ideas. School choice is kind of the standout issue where the governor has for a long time said he supports school choice, but he hasn't done anything about it. He hasn't pushed it. His agenda, his actual policy priorities tend to be much more middle of the road. And then all the Republicans that vote against school choice consistently are supported by the governor for their reelection campaigns. If anything, he went in and worked extra hard in the primary and runoffs this year to try to keep some Republicans who were against school choice while opposing Republicans who were for it. But he has been very loud and vocal ever since Arizona passed their universal school choice program and saying that Texas is going to get on the board on this issue. You understand with constitutional carry how this was very similar where Texas stepped up to the plate after what, like 17 states had passed constitutional. So we're kind of similar in school choice that Abbott's finally getting around to saying, no, I think we really need to do this. And it's following on the heels of this becoming such a big national issue. I think the education issue, not only from a school choice perspective, but also from an overall sexualization of our children is going to be a big discussion this session. And so you're going to have a conversation not only about school choice, but also about the sex ed conversations, even a Florida style bill that just says you can't talk about sex to a first, second or third grader, something very basic. I think that those type of policies, um, Dan Patrick has already said he's going to push that bill next session. He's already said it's going to come out of the Senate quickly so that the House has to address it. And Dade Phelan has basically issued statements acting like this is not that important. And if we do something, it's going to be some vague general support of parental rights. And so that segues then into the overall sexualization of children, which I think will be an even bigger issue. You have representatives Brian Slayton and other members who have come out, and he's our kind of conservative champion from East Texas, come out and say, we're going to 
work to ban all these drag shows that are happening with children in attendance. We're going to end the genital mutilation surgeries, the therapies, the puberty blockers that are being given to these kids with adults conspiring to try to turn little boys into little girls, little girls into little boys. I think there's going to be a huge conversation about the sexualization of children. And then with immigration, we are likely, hopefully, Lord willing, going to be in a scenario where Carrie Lake will have been sworn in, and we are going to start the legislative session probably a day or two after she has declared an invasion on the Arizona border. And if she is governor and she declares that invasion, then Texas is going to follow suit. And something that we've been asking conservatives to do for the last two years, and Tucker Carlson has been asking, and the Center for Renewing America, Russ Vote, all these people have been asking will likely be forced upon Texas because Abbott tends to fall in line when the national media are pushing him to do so, which I think they will if Carrie Lake has declared that invasion. So there will be an actual border security measure pushed at the southern border where we're actually denying people entrance. I think there will also be a push to end taxpayer subsidies to illegals during the 2023 budget. So you have uh, numerous issues. I know that doesn't even cover a lot of them. Ultimately, we're in this huge cultural moment where we have so many different issues that it doesn't matter how conservative one session is or how many Republican priorities you pass in one session. If you're not ready to pass another 10, 12, 15, 20, the next session, you just can't keep up. And it's not until Republicans really take an aggressive approach that the left might actually take a step back. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. You have to play offense because playing defense is not enough now because of the simple fact that the left is playing for keeps now. Absolutely. Yep. So this is one thing I like to hammer home because people in the political trenches understand like the realities of politics, which is oftentimes not portrayed in the media or in just like general commentary because – People tend to think that partisan labels just like make like the idea of like passing like a pro gun bill or whatever an uh, absolute certainty or uh by the contrast by contrast a absolute dead end. But when you've been in politics for a while, you recognize that these partisan labels are not exactly what they seem. In fact, just because a politician has an R beside their name does not make them a conservative, much less like receptive to passing grassroots conservative legislation. Based on your time working in politics, what have been like the most notable ways that Texas Republicans have dropped the ball and even betrayed their constituencies? I mean, the one that really stands out, because some of these have happened in the past, we have had abortion was very difficult to move through Texas for a long time because we had a speaker in Joe Strauss whose wife had served on the board of Planned Parenthood at one time. And yet he was supported by the Republican caucus to be the speaker who decided what policy moved and what policy didn't. And so you have a lot of these issues that have surfaced over time. I think the current one that stands out, there's really two. I think fundamentally the fact that we have had taxpayer subsidies to illegals in Texas, state-based created programs that we give illegal access to is absolutely asinine. It's just really insane to think that Republicans have seen fit to keep those in and they have refused to even let a vote take place on whether those should continue. They have protected that program ever since it was created under Governor Rick Perry. That's, I think, just one area where it, it is a, a sense of betrayal because these are this is money that each and every one of us is spending. And if you don't realize that this is the time to not have a single program that 
cover somebody who's illegal, then I just don't think you really fundamentally understand it. Then with the transitioning of kids, I mean, it's been now four years since conservatives have been talking about the fact that we have children being sexually transitioned in Texas, that we are pioneering ideas. And Representative Brian Slayton recently brought up the fact that our own Texas medical schools, we now know, are teaching doctors how to sexually transition children. You can take classes in this kind of perverted you know, practice. And so that entire issue is just across the board something. And this is where I think it gets into the area of betrayal because the problem fundamentally is that 30 to 40% of Democrats oppose the transition, sexual transition of a child. And 60% of independents oppose the sexual transitioning of a child. And 90% of Republicans oppose the sexual transition of a child. And so we often get told that the conservative policy that you want to push is really not very popular with these various different groups. And so in order for me to push conservative policy, I have to take a risk with other voting demographics outside of the most conservative. Constitutional carry actually fits this issue. And I'm a supporter of it. And I think it's a good thing that it passed. And I think we should fight to keep it in law. But we can admit that independents don't like constitutional carry very much. And we can admit that Democrats largely don't like constitutional carry, not to the extent that they support, not nearly to the extent that they support a policy like ending the sexual transition of a child. And so the fact that Speaker Dade Phelan and Representatives Dustin Burroughs and Stephanie Click, who were chairman in the House that helped kill that legislation, ended it, even though it wouldn't cost them politically, makes it more of an ideological betrayal. And so I think that fits that area. And then the last thing, which has become an issue just over the last couple of years, is that Representative Brian Slayton brought up an amendment that tried to ban Democrats from chairing committees in the Texas House. And there are almost no red states in America that allow Democrats to chair committees. And if you are the chairman of a legislative committee, you have sole discretion over that area of policy on what bills move and don't move in the Texas House. And we give almost 40% of our committees to very liberal Marxist Democrats. And, and Dade Phelan uses that to either kill bills. He also uses it to give Democrats more power so that they can keep the conservatives in check. If you're a conservative Republican in Texas and you're trying to move conservative policy, even if it's in a Republican committee, Democrats will punish you for pushing these conservative ideas for killing all of your other bills that are in their committees. And that's the kind of political leverage that we should never give to our enemy. So I don't know how that is anything but a betrayal of voters who have given Republicans power in Texas. I want to piggyback on the sexual deviancy and LGBT stuff because that is just grotesque. And I've noticed this full court press that the cultural left is running in schools through the propagation of LGBT indoctrination and the normalization of sexual deviancy among students that are like in like the first grade. It's absolutely absurd. And I've long argued that the GOP has ignored this issue among a host of other social conservative issues for decades. And it's now biting them in the rear when you have school districts in ostensibly red counties that are just staffed to the gills with all these freaks that are pushing this degenerate curricula, for lack of a better word, which cases of LGBT indoctrination taking place in the state has caused you the most concern? And what solutions do you and the political activists close to you have for these problems? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's really hard to pick. It's like, 
if somebody asks you, you know, what type of sexual abuse of children do you find uh, most problematic? You know, that you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Uh, I'm pretty sure all of it's really bad. Like, I don't want to pick one that's less, but I will say the one that stands out to me in my mind and not, I actually think that sexual transitioning of kids is of course, always the most offensive because of the permanency of it. Yeah. But I believe that the current issue of drag shows that we have going on has to be kind of the most current and up-to-date in-your-face sexualization of the kids. The difference is that most of the transitioning of a child is not done really in a public way. It's not done in a show. It's not like, come transition your kid. And that's really what these drag shows have become, which is bring your kids. I talked about this last week on my podcast. We have, because we follow these different drag shows around Texas. And one of the new ones that just got announced was this drag show in Corpus Christi. And so it's one of those all ages drag shows, right? So some of these places have even like an all ages two hours and then the kids have to leave because I guess it gets really nasty, right? So they're like, well, there's some crazier stuff we're going to do as soon as the kids are out of the room. And so they advertise it different ways, right? And the one in Roanoke that was recently in North Texas, after getting so much blowback, they came out and said, hey, just to let everyone know, your kids are welcome, but you should only do it if you're comfortable. And oh, by the way, we have told our dancers to keep things appropriate. Now, the reality is we now know from footage, the dancers did not keep their any of this appropriate. And the reason is because just the whole thing's inappropriate. You can't, you can't say, I'm going to be a man. I'm going to dress up like a woman. I'm going to dance provocatively, but I'm going to try to do it, you know, on like a PG 13 kind of provocative. Well, this (laughs) is free. Okay. Like the kid should be watching Winnie the Pooh and you're not Winnie the Pooh. And so this is just not working. But this place in Corpus Christi, I thought was really interesting because it was a, it's a Christmas drag show in December of this year. Oh God. And the way they announced it, though, is they said all ages are welcome. It's all these like fairies and I don't know, elves and all these different Christmassy looking costumes that their dancers are evidently going to have. And then they said, uh, this is an all ages event. Kids are welcome. But know that this is a drag show and things will be getting a little naughty. And I'm assuming they're playing off the whole naughty or nice uh, deal. Yeah, with Christmas. Oh, and, man. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. You know, naughty literally often refers to inappropriate sexual activity. That's the term. That's what it means. And so if you broke it down to its definition, like you would never ever say, hey, bring your two or three-year-old. They're welcome to come. But just to let you know, there's going to be some sexually inappropriate stuff we're going to be doing up in here. Like that does not follow. It doesn't compute. So the question is, why can they say that? And the reason they're saying it is because they have to make this stuff okay. So one of the blessings of Ron DeSantis, which is also the blessing of having red states and focusing on state policy, is that when he came out and said, we're going to tell teachers they can't talk to kids in first, second, and third grade about sex, you know, the first reaction to everybody was, of course, that's not happening. None of us are even doing that. And then it wasn't three months later that all of a sudden it's like, bring your two-year-old and we're going to shake our crotch in front of her face or his face. And you go, well, you say you're not doing it, but we really do have a group of very far left individuals who are pretty hell bent on sexualizing the culture and, and not just the adult culture, but the children's culture as well. And so that to me is the one that stands out as just such an easy thing to end. But Republicans are going to have to decide whether that ends or not, because right now it's legal in Texas. There is an opportunity for the comptroller, Glenn Hager, who most people don't even know about, 
but he can take some action against some of these drag shows who have allowed for lines to be crossed that make them sexually oriented businesses. So we're hopeful that he shows some courage here and takes them on. But it's not very hopeful when it comes to Republicans as a whole taking this on. What's likely going to happen is somebody like Dan Patrick can lead the charge on this and push policy out quickly. The governor needs to speak out and pressure needs to be put on the House, both on the governor's mansion and the House in order to actually see something like that become law. Slightly related, because this is obviously dealing with education, what type of reforms are you guys looking to see enacted in the upcoming legislative session? Okay. So as a whole, I would say, I think school choice is going to first and foremost be the fundamental issue that's pushed, but we are going to have a big push for school choice across the board that I think will be receive a lot of attention. And I think the governor actually pushing it puts House members in a much harder position. Ultimately, if they think it's going to cost them politically, which they really haven't felt in the last 10 years, then it really could fundamentally change the trajectory. People don't realize that the teacher unions run the Texas House, period. They really do. And so it is fundamentally has been something very frustrating to a lot of conservatives for a long time. And I believe that that issue and teacher unions losing their grip on the Texas House could really change in a big way the Overton window regarding the education issue in Texas. I see. And this is also another issue related, well, at least like somewhat related to education because of the fact that property taxes do are technically like help finance education in Texas. And as somebody whose family effectively got forced out of their home due to the, the property tax burden in the North Dallas area getting so high, this issue definitely is big for me and countless other Texas homeowners. And property taxes in Texas are pretty steep for those who are like unaware and You'll always hear the typical cope argument. Uh, oh, it's just because like the, the government has to make its money due to the fact that there's no income tax here. But regardless, the burden's getting so high now with regards to property taxes that there's like even states that have like relatively low income taxes that technically have it a lower overall tax burden than the so-called low tax state of Texas, especially if you're a homeowner. So you always have like the GOP talking about lowering the property tax burden, and then in the end, usually ends up doing nothing. From what you've observed thus far, what proposals are out there to give homeowners tax relief in Texas? So there's a lot of different policies when it comes to property taxes overall, but I think this session, we start in a really simple place. We have $27 billion of a surplus. This is money that we didn't budget to spend, that we didn't think we were going to have, that due to inflation and economic growth, we have. And so we have $27 billion sitting there. And fundamentally, if you were going to eliminate school property taxes, it would cost around $40 billion. So you have two-thirds, I mean, easily, honestly, almost three-fourths of the money available to buy down people's property taxes. And we uh, are allowed to compress people's school property taxes, meaning we can write a check to school districts and say, we're giving you $25 billion, but this $25 billion to these public schools is not extra money. It is money that is replacing what you're collecting from local property taxpayers. And so if they were taking 
$5,000 from you the next year, you would see, oh, the state has paid $3,200, $3,200 of your $5,000, right? As an example. And so depending on how all the math worked out, but ultimately that is the best and cleanest mechanism we have to actually putting Texas in a reasonable property tax rate. What we've seen is the more we have of property tax relief, each session basically becomes the next floor of the next session because politicians don't like getting screamed at. And so they have once they fund that compression every two years, they have to continue to fund it. And then they have to find more if they want to continue to buy it down additionally. But we have yet to see the legislature pull back after compressing the rate at all. It becomes that new standard. And so it's the new zero. We fight to make that as large as possible. There was a time that the Texas House was really talking about like four and a half billion dollars of property tax relief at one point, which then shifted uh, when the lieutenant governor came out and talked about between seven and eight billion dollars. Still not enough, but he at least moved it up. And then Governor Abbott came out and said, I want a minimum of 50 percent of that to go back to property taxpayers. And so that now raises it to like $13.5 billion. And then Dan Patrick came out and said, actually, I want more than half. So let's say $14 billion is our new starting point. So we continue to see that number go up and we should keep pushing until it goes up all the way to the full $27 billion. I think there's two things that we kind of talk about when it comes to property taxes that we have problems with. One is just an overall tax problem. You don't want to tax people too much. We should try to have a low tax state. That is a good thing. But fundamentally, home ownership is where most Americans build their net worth. It is where most Americans actually take themselves out. It is a, an entire class shift when you can take someone from being out of a mindset that they make money and spend all the money to they make money and some of it goes towards an asset that is appreciating in value. And the vast majority of Americans out there, they don't start saving in their 401k or IRA till much later in life. They don't start thinking about that next step. But if you're 30, one of your best ways to actually build value, inherent value, net worth that you can pass on to future generations that you can use to really shape, reshape your family. And also that gives you a tremendous amount of self-worth is owning property. And so when we tax property to the extent that we do, it fundamentally steals that opportunity from middle class and lower middle class individuals in our state. And I think that's a big problem that we have to wrestle with, that we have essentially taken property ownership and taken the bottom third of our society and said, there's no way you can even own it because ultimately you're buying a mortgage. And when your taxes are so high, there's no way you can qualify. So that's, I think, one of the other fundamental issues we have to really grapple with when it comes to this property tax issue. It's not just a low tax issue, which is, of course, very important, but it's also fundamentally about giving normal Texans a real shot at building something of value for themselves and their families. Agreed on all fronts. And that's also part of the whole Great Reset agenda to make sure that you own nothing and be like supposedly happy. And it's all about like destroying home ownership, which is like one of like the ways that you can secure a middle class lifestyle in the US. And it also has a lot of pacifying factors to that produce socially beneficial outcomes. But we do have like a political elite that is much more concerned about socially engineering society in their own image, consequences be damned. And this also leads to another policy that these very same elites are pushing, which is mass migration. And the illegal 
alien invasion continues to be a controversial issue in Texas, just based on geography. Because when you share a border of a failed state such as Mexico, it leaves the whole state vulnerable to like the movement of cartels, drug traffickers, and other nasty actors. And the federal government has been blatantly derelict on this issue, which is curiously compelling a lot of states to take matters into their own hands. And we did see Governor Greg Abbott nominally try to tackle the issue through like that launch of the operation like Lone Star. And though this program has been filled with a lot of problems that have been documented by people like Pedro Gonzalez, how has Abbott, in in your estimation, bungled that policy? And what do you think is a much more durable solution to the immigration problem that Texas is currently facing? I was at a Republican fundraiser with some rather large donors in San Antonio and the immigration issue came up and one of them asked about these different policies and the person who was there said, well, you know, we haven't been able to do much with that right now. And he said, well, wait a second, I thought the governor just declared the cartels terrorist organizations. Doesn't that mean you can treat them like terrorists? And the answer was like, well, it's kind of complicated. And the donor legitimately looked kind of broken. Like, what? I saw the Fox News piece that said we were calling them terrorists. I figured that meant we were doing something about the cartels. But still, cartels are crossing our border, and they're delivering illegals in a human trafficking manner to Border Patrol and getting them checked in. So even these terrorists are still being allowed to roam the border. So that's a real problem. When I look at this issue, ultimately, every policy that has been brought out has been window dressing. It has been a refusal to say that we are in a time where the only thing we can do is declare an invasion and tell these illegals they cannot come in. Ultimately, nothing else we do matters. Now, if you told me, okay, there is no way we will ever stop anybody from coming in, and if Republicans were honest about their opinions on that, then we could have a conversation of like, okay, well, then the best thing to do would be to like, drive these people to Washington, D.C. and New York City and make a laughing stock of the country and at least win the public debate. But that's not really our goal. Our goal is to stop the invasion of our country. Two million people have come in since Joe Biden was elected president. And so the only solution that makes any sense that Tucker Carlson has talked about, that Carrie Lake, that Don Huffines campaigned on when he ran for governor, Alan West did the same thing, and that ultimately Carrie Lake has also said needs to happen and she will do when she gets elected is declare an invasion. And so uh, Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution gives the states the ability to declare an invasion, to actually deny people entries to their country without the federal government's cooperation because the federal government's not doing their job. And I think that Carrie Lake doing that in January, like I said earlier, is what's going to force Texas's hand. I do think you'll see Texas follow suit. I know a lot of Texas donors that are spending even more money in Arizona because they really do want to secure the border. And the only way to secure the borders by making sure Republicans win in Arizona, not Texas. And that's kind of embarrassing to say, but it is the truth of where we're at. Yep, that's the cold, hard truth. And unfortunately, it's going to have to take like outside pressure to get the Texas GOP in line. And another incident has also served as a major wake up call for not just like Texas, but other Republican states to start taking nullification and states' rights 
seriously. For example, you had the latest FBI raid conducted against former President Donald Trump, which was another reminder of why you need to have like strong state governments to keep these federal jackboots in check. On the off the top of your head, are there any representatives or elected officials who are going to introduce legislation that will limit the FBI's influence in Texas? So Brian Slayton's the only one who's talked about it so far. He basically said, if the FBI is not going to be put in check, then we've got to get them out of Texas. And there's been a lot of people that have um, kind of insinuated uh, things like this in other states. Ultimately, I think that if the state of Texas was really serious about believing that their citizens were under threat of persecution from the Federal Bureau of of Investigation, which is true, that is a true statement, then they would take more active steps against them. So I don't even know exactly what that looks like, but ultimately the state of Texas should make it very clear that we're not going to work with this agency, that these agents are not welcome in this state and that the, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you want to cut the power to the building that the FBI is in, you know, make a move to like a military base where they can be protected as opposed to be allowed to have a building land that the state could condemn. I mean, we need to literally not ratchet up the pressure. And I think Republicans just are many times not willing to see the fight that way. But Representative Brian Slate did come out and say that, and and I think he was right to do so. And so specific policies haven't really been fleshed out, but I do think that we're it's going to be interesting to see how serious Republicans are about putting pressure on the FBI. Overall, heading into the 2023 legislative session, how optimistic are you about solid conservative legislation being passed? So uh, when it comes to the life issue in general, And I think we need to understand that uh, we've had numerous Republicans come out. We were really blessed to have uh, laws already on the books that were never taken off, pre-Roe laws that protect unborn children. And so when Roe v. Wade was overturned, those immediately went into effect. And the attorney general said abortion's illegal even before the trigger ban came in. One of the reasons why some conservatives have said the trigger ban wasn't as necessary was because it was honestly repetitive. We already had pre-row statues on the books. You've seen a move, I think it was Nebraska, where you know the governor talked about pushing, or maybe it was Idaho, where they talked about pushing stronger like heartbeat legislation, eight weeks, moving from 20-week ban to eight-week ban. And within several weeks, realized they did not have the support in the Republican legislature to pass that type of policy. I do think that us being in a post-Roe era actually makes it harder to pass pro-life laws. And we have numerous Republican officials, including Dade Phelan, Robert Nichols, even Carl Rove, who's a Texan, not a legislator, but a lot of people listened to him, came out and basically said, the pro-life laws we have are too extreme in Texas and we have to moderate them. We There are some children who can't be killed that need to be able to be killed, basically, is what they're saying. And so this is going to really change the dynamics. I don't think we're going to see a watering down of policy by any means. And at this point, we're one of the most pro-life states in the union with our bill laws, but it is much, it's going to be much harder to strengthen them at all. Because there is a good chance that if currently, unless we really step up and make these politicians feel some political pain, some of them are going to try to waffle back into the middle. Many such cases. And before we depart, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? 
I just hope people stay engaged on Texas issues. Uh, it's really important to know what's going on in the state. And I just think that there's often a barrier to entry perception people have that they can't make an impact in politics when it really is not that hard. That's one of the things that motivates me heavily. And so I encourage people to reach out to local officials, be it your mayor, your school board member, one of your you know, city councilmen, county commissioners, state rep, and just ask for a meeting, sit down, join a local Republican conservative group, uh, True Texas Project, are all over the state, other conservative organizations. You can reach out to me on my website, lukemacias.com. I'm really passionate about getting people plugged into something they can do because I really do think that it's not hard to have an overall impact and just would encourage everyone to try to make sure they understand that it's not that hard to make a difference. Yeah, feel free to promote any other work that you're doing because uh, on this platform, I, I like to give my guess the chance to plug their content and create and spread value ultimately. Yeah. I mean, LukeMacias.com is where my podcast gets posted, which is the Luke Macias show. Of course, anywhere you're listening to this podcast, you can also listen to the Luke Macias show. And like I said, we focus really on what's going on in Texas specific to state policy, state politics, state news. And so that's what we spend most of our time talking about. If you care about certain issues, there's organizations out there working on that. And there are good and bad organizations. And so one of the things I like is just people coming and saying, hey, I'm, con I'm concerned about faith issues or social conservative issues or fiscal conservative issues, stuff like that. And so I think that the more people can have that Texas scorecard Dot com is where uh, my podcast is published and they are the largest uh, producer of Texas news, conservative Texas news in the state. And so you can go there as well to just see what they're doing, what they're writing about, signing up. I just, my hope is that people listening to this are more likely to take some steps and engage in Texas politics because I think that it is not hard to make a difference. All right, that will do it, everyone. Thank you all for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.